What is up? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila, both on the same episode of the I show, know. just like the old times, Nando. I know. It's been so long. I just, you know, life has just gotten in the way. You know, it's just sometimes life, it comes at you fast. Sometimes it also gets in the way. And, um, you know, we've had to get creative on this show on how we, uh, how we bring it to you people. But we got it done. And now we're back. Absolutely. I actually think it's it, it was such a great show last week. I mean, I missed you. It's nice having you here in the flesh. Um, but it was also great uh, to sit back and kind of take in you interviewing um, Nina Turner. That was a fantastic interview. Everyone check that out. Um, and I loved your decode segment. I'm forgetting at the moment what you did your decode on, but I remember loving it. Um <laughs> Right? Uh, Everything uh, just like becomes a blur. I don't even remember. Kale, come back on. What did I do my decode on? It was on, it was on the election. And uh, oh, yeah, right. yeah. against, against right. idealism yeah. amongst liberals and the left. Was, right, 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 right. It was right, very right. well done. And yeah. uh, for those of you who missed it, don't worry. You can always subscribe to the Jacobin channel, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag, and check it out whenever you have time. Uh, we've got it available as a video on demand. But uh, have no fear. We also have an awesome show ahead for you guys today. We have not one but two interviews. We're going to be talking to David Sirota about the uh, current state of the so-called budget reconciliation bill, otherwise known as Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Where do Democrats stand on that? Um, I've been incredibly, really cynical and negative. Um, so I'll try to I'll try to keep that under control as we uh, ask about it. And then later, we're going to talk about a, uh, a poll that was done by Jacobin and YouGov in regard to what the working class electorate is looking for in terms of political candidates, what they care about in regard to political issues. It's a really, really fascinating study. Um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Katie Reeder about that later in the show. Um, but before we get to all of that, we've got our decode segments. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And I, I also want to discuss Abby Martin, um, who is a journalist with the Empire Files, just absolutely kicking ass and asking the right questions of Nancy Pelosi during the climate summit. Uh, but anyway, uh, before we get to that, Nando, actually, why don't we get to that um, Abby Martin story first? I was going to go to our um, Verso read, but that would, that would take things out of order. That would uh, right. put you catch you off guard. All no, right, I, so, I'm ready, but let's do yeah, let's do Abby Martin first. Let's Friend do of Abby the show. Martin. She gets to go at the top of the show. Absolutely, I love it. Um, she's just she and Mike Preisner um, go to these conferences and these summits, and somehow they manage to get called on, and they always ask the right questions. Their focus, their beat, is on the defense industry and the Pentagon, and um, this was no exception. So. Abby Martin from the Empire Files got a chance to ask House Speaker Nancy Pelosi about how the Pentagon contributes to the climate crisis. And this was during the COP26 summit in Glasgow. Uh, you know, they're centering this event on climate change and what they can do to respond to it. Now, before we get to the substance, I do want to focus on the very, very beginning when Nancy Pelosi clearly had no idea who Abby Martin was, and she called on her for a very specific reason that's just, it's so lib. Let's watch. Wait a minute. Wait, I want a woman. I want a woman. A woman. A woman. <laughs> Gender equality here. Uh, Maybe I don't. Let's see. <laughs> Abby Martin with the Empire Files. Well, I want to. Yeah, yeah. You know when the ID poll comes to bite you in the ass, 
that's what that happens, you know, and you just think all women be the same. There, she was, she thought she was going to ask her about like, uh, I don't know, the latest when the new season of Emily in Paris comes out, or uh, you know, did she watch The Bachelor or something? <laughs> it's so no. embarrassing because think about it. This is on an international stage. And (laughs) I mean, everyone think about how every other country views or perceives the United States, especially on the issue of climate change. And then you have like Nancy Pelosi, like posturing, like I'm all for gender equality. I mean, our actions are making this planet uninhabitable, especially for black and brown people, poor people, women, like all sorts of people. But it's okay. I'm all for gender equality. And I want to amend. I just love Abby's like what she's like kind of laughing to herself. You know, she's like Abby Martin. (laughs) Like she's like what she's saying, introducing herself. She's like kind of laughing at herself. It's pretty funny. It's so good. All right. So I wanted to get that out of the way because that was honestly um, a highlight for me. Uh, Now let's uh, listen to Abby Martin's fantastic question. Speaker Pelosi, you just presided over a a large increase in the Pentagon budget. This Pentagon budget is already massive. The Pentagon is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined. How can we seriously talk about net zero if there is this bipartisan consensus to constantly expand this large contributor to climate change, which is exempt from these conferences? Military is exempt from climate talks. That was such a great question. And I'm going to unpack it a little bit in a second. But Nando, what was your reaction to that? I mean, yeah, it's, I remember, well, first of all, it just reminded me of like one of Elizabeth Warren's funniest policy proposals was like, we're going to have a green military, um, you know, which was just hilarious, you know, uh, and the most Liz Warren thing of all time. Uh, but yeah, that, um, that was amazing. I mean, you, you, you don't have, this question would never get asked in the White House press corps or, you know, like outside of Congress or whatever, uh, by the people who cover Congress regularly. Um, it takes an outsider like Abby Martin at this international conference where she can kind of sneak in and in a, in a, in a way, she didn't sneak in like surreptitiously, but she, you know, metaphorically snuck in, snuck through the cracks, uh, because it's such a big international conference and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. It was such a great question. So we're going to get to Pelosi's answer, which was telling in just a moment. But I wanted to unpack uh, Abby's question and just kind of provide some more detail into what she's specifically referring to, because she's absolutely right in that the Pentagon does significantly contribute to the climate crisis. And it's an issue that's really not talked about or reported on too often. And so um, the U.S. military is actually one of the largest polluters in history, consuming more liquid fuels and emitting more climate changing gases than most medium sized countries. If the United States military were a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, sitting between Peru and Portugal. And uh, this uh, report by Quartz gets into um, the nitty gritty, like granular detail in regard to exactly how the Pentagon is contributing to climate change. For instance, in 2017, the U.S. military bought about 269,230 barrels of oil a day and emitted more than 25,000 kilotons of carbon dioxide by burning those fuels. Then you move over to the U.S. Air Force. Uh, They purchased $4.9 billion worth of fuel that same year, and the Navy $2.8 billion, followed by the Army at $947 million and the Marines at $36 million. 
And, um, you know, Abby, in the context of her question, uh, said that the Pentagon is exempt. Like, what was she referring to there exactly? Well, the United States um, insisted on an exemption for reporting military emissions <laughs> in the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. The loophole was closed by the Paris Accord, but the Trump administration um, withdrew from the accord in uh, a- a- in 2020. Um, I'm sorry, withdrew from the accord in 2020, then this gap uh, returned. So, uh, you know, Biden is now saying that he's uh, re-entering the Paris Climate Agreement. But I just want to note one thing about that. It's always been a non-binding agreement, right? So a lot of what the United States engages in on an international scale is symbolic stuff um, in, in terms of actually carrying out policies or actions that Uh, cut back carbon emissions significantly enough to make a difference. We haven't really seen that. Um, And by the way, Congress, of course, as Abby mentioned, uh, consistently votes in favor for more and more military spending every single year. And it's really a bipartisan effort. The House voted 316 to 113 uh, to pass $777.9 billion in defense spending. Uh, That is for the fiscal year of 2022. And that National Defense Authorization Act included an amendment to add $23.9 billion to the defense budget. Representative Mike Rogers, a Republican from Alabama, proposed the amendment, which was approved, of course, by the House panel in early September of this year. So with all of that context, which I think is really, really important for people to know about, let's uh, listen in on Nancy Pelosi and how she chose to answer this question. I do think that the Defense Department is very much aware of the fact that they have to play a major role both from a strategic as well as, you know, for the good of the world. So I don't see what we're doing in any way or, you know, increasing the defense budget as being something that's inconsistent with climate action. I really don't. And may I just add that um, national security advisors all tell us that the climate crisis is a national security matter. Uh, it is, of course, a health matter for our children, the water they drink, the air they breathe, etc. It is a jobs issue between clean, good, clean technologies uh, being the future of our workforce and the training for all of that. It is a national security issue because of the, uh, uh, all of the con- conditions that climate crisis produces. I won't go into all of them, but they do ca- are cause for migration, conflict over habitat and resources, Migration, conflict over habitat and resources. I mean, she just says it out loud, right? I I thought that that answer was so telling because it wasn't about, you know, you're right and this is an issue and it's something that we're focusing on. Um, You know, we need to whatever. Like, you know, even like the, the, the faux concern she didn't even get into. She was just like, yeah, I mean, like the crap we're doing is going to lead to a lot of conflict because of like the limited resources in the world and how we're, you know, just completely destroying what's left of this planet. And so, you know, we're going to need the military to uh, close our borders and prevent, you know, the migration crisis that's uh, soon to follow. Like all of that. Like she just said it. She just said it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, when we destroy the planet, people are going to be like, what the fuck? And we're going to need to defend ourselves. They're going to be angry and they're going to want <laughs> payback and they're going to want to take our shit and our standard of living. So we need to defend it um, with guns. Uh, it's, 
It's, um, I mean, you know, Bessner talks about this a lot. Daniel, Danny Bessner, our friend, he, you know, he always points out, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that we've absorbed here in the United States, but um, that international law, international accords, treaties, international organizations, whatever, we enforce on other countries kind of viciously and to the letter of the law, but then we exempt ourselves every single time. Totally. Like we just exempt totally. ourselves. Like, you know, even even in the Kyoto Protocol, like that's very cute that we're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do the thing. It's going to be non-binding and yeah, leave our military out of it. We're not going to count that. And it's, you know, because we need our military to just ever expand because our state is essentially just a, uh, you know, a way to funnel resources away from the people into the arms of defense contractors. So, yeah, um, it's just this was like a very particularly uh, jarring example of that and a, uh, a very clarifying moment from Abby Martin doing her job. Yeah, she does it well. And Empire Files, of course, has a uh, YouTube channel that you guys should subscribe to. Um, lots of really, really great reporting there, including um, in-depth analysis on the Afghanistan war. Uh, I actually had Abby come to speak to my students about the reporting she does. And they watched um, her Afghanistan series and they were like blown away by it because they don't see journalism like that in television, you know? And no. So they really loved it, and I think it, it inspired them to do better. Um, so I'm grateful for Abby, grateful for the reporting she does. Everyone check that out. And just one final thought, you know, regardless of the lack of concern the United States has for the rest of the world in regard to climate change, I think that everyone is going to be okay with the U.S. because Nancy Pelosi called on a woman during this conference. So it's going to be all right, you know, as long as she's for gender equality in, in you know, <laughs> rhetorical ways. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got our partner to give a shout out to. So why don't we do that before I decodes? Right. It's been a while, but you can join the Verso book club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso book club members will also get 50% off everything on the website. The comrade tier is only $20 a month. And for your first three months, and if you join in November, you'll get these Books, Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough by Holly Jean Buck, A Political Case for Ending the Fossil Fuel Industry. That sounds good. Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space by Fred Sharman, A Radical History of Space Exploration from the Russian Cosmists to Elon Musk. The Anthropocene Unconscious. Climate Catastrophe in Contemporary Culture by Mark Bould, an exploration of how climate anxiety permeates our culture, and a new edition of Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil by W.E.B. Dubois, with a new introduction from award-winning poet and novelist, Honoré Fanon Jeffers. Oh, Nando, it's so good to have you back to do the live read. It really is. Yeah. Because you, 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 you put a lot of pizzazz in it. Well, I never yeah. do it. <laughs> I never yeah, do it. Do Nothing it. against Verso. I'm just not a very good advertiser or yeah. a live reader. Um, but yeah, I am I mean, a prostitute. I will sell my voice to the highest bidder. You know, you know, Raytheon's Raytheon Diversity and Inclusion uh, Initiative. Hire me. Uh, I'll do it. 
<laughs> Love it. All right. Well, let's get to our decodes. Um, a little later, Nando will be talking about the uh, Jacobin YouGov survey of the working class, you know, just to kind of give you guys some context before we do our interview about it. I'm going in a completely different direction. I want to do more on the housing market. And so there was a satisfying Zillow fail that I wanted to get into, mm. but also just kind of talk about the ramifications of these so-called institutional investors. So let's get after it. So in a system where housing is considered an investment or a commodity, the human need for shelter will always take a back seat to the interests of the investor class. Now, recently, for a brief moment, the failure of Zillow as a major investor in single family residential homes yielded pretty satisfying headlines for people like me. But it also highlighted a pretty serious issue of treating housing as a business venture as opposed to something that's necessary as a basic human need. So what happened with Zillow? Uh, the real estate listings website tried its hand in this mass scale home flipping venture. But it turns out that uh, real estate speculation is just a little more complicated than the company had anticipated. So in August, there was an arms race among tech companies that were trying to buy up as much real estate as possible as housing prices exploded across the country. Zillow bet big, telling investors that it planned to buy thousands of houses throughout 2021 and turn its homes division into a billion dollar business. So uh, collecting personal data every time you go onto its website to look at real estate, uh, real estate listings wasn't enough for them. Uh, they wanted to find another way to maximize profits. And so they decided to do this like mass scale home flipping, um, you know, venture. Um, at the time, by the way, home prices were continuing to move upward and you would expect Zillow to pretty, like, make a handsome return on this investment. Uh, but it turns out, Mm, things didn't go so well, and I love it. So as the summer came to an end, it seemed like Zillow's offers business was also cooling down. In October, the company told investors that it would stop buying houses, citing construction, renovation, and housing labor shortages. Bloomberg, however, speculated it could also be motivated by excess inventory and reported that Zillow seemed to sell a good number of houses at a loss instead of a profit. Now, before I get into more details on what happened with Zillow, just remember there's a limited inventory of homes for working class families, middle class families to buy. And when there's a lack of inventory and there's demand already that drives the price of homes up to something that becomes incredibly unattainable. However, these Wall Street investors, these institutional investors buying up thousands of homes, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of these homes, um, obviously puts ordinary Americans at even more of a disadvantage. So when you've seen the housing prices really explode, understand that one of the factors um, you know, leading to this uh, has to do with these in, uh, in um, Wall Street or institutional investors. Now, Zillow's gamble had already resulted in tremendous losses, forcing the company to scramble for a way to offload its bad investments. During the most recent quarter, Zillow's home segment, which includes Zillow offers, recorded nearly $422 million in losses before taxes. That's up from roughly $76 million in losses 
a year earlier. Now, Zillow is looking to offload around 7,000 of the homes it bought. Now, unfortunately, poor decisions by executives usually translates to consequences for everyone else. Here's Zillow's CEO, Rich Barton, who, um, by the way, is still employed, discussing what those consequences are. The decision to wind down our Zillow offers iBuying operation involves a layoff of about 25% of the workforce. And that is a heavy, heavy thing, given all of the people involved and all of the work they've put in. I mean, yeah, I mean, like we made really bad decisions. And so as a result, 25% of our workforce uh, will be laid off. But um, I'm the leader of the company that engaged in this massive fail. And I get to do cable news interviews and I get to keep my job. Awesome. Now, imagine losing money on real estate in an economy where low interest rates set by the Federal Reserve led to an explosion in home values. Not many predicted Zillow's failure, but some were able to read the tea leaves, like Steve Eisman, who raised red flags back in August of 2019. This was before the pandemic era. This was before the pandemic era home buying spree by Wall Street investors. And I think that this was certainly foreshadowing, but people weren't paying attention. The part of the business I find the most problematic is what they call their, I believe, iHome business, internet buying business, where they actually go out and buy homes and flip them. Um, I actually think the company doesn't understand the risk, the real risk of this business, which are massive. There are thousands of mini markets all over the United States. They're all local. They're all Mm -hmm. extremely different. They all have incredibly different risks. For example, did you know that in Dallas, there's a problem that many, many homes have cracked foundations? Um, These type of different problems exist all over the country. This is a capital intensive business. Mm -hmm. I know I know only one thing for certain between now and five years from now, assuming the company has some level of success, there will be massive problems that they will uncover. Now, while Eisman might have known about the foundation issues in many of the houses in Texas, uh, apparently Zillow didn't do its due diligence and invested in those homes. And let me just say, repairing the foundation of a home costs a lot of money. It's not uh, as easy as just uh, buying a home and doing like minor renovations to just flip it later for a much higher price. And so, um, understandably, Zillow found itself in quite a pickle. But for those of you who might be celebrating the massive fail by Zillow here, and I know that I did for a very short period of time, just understand that the 7,000 homes that Zillow is looking to offload will not be back on the market for ordinary Americans to be able to make bids on. No, 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 no. They're looking for institutional investors to offload these homes on. The company is trying to sell the homes to institutional investors, read Wall Street-like firms, to the tune of $2.8 billion. Investors made up about 20%, that's one-fifth, guys, 20% of the home buying market in 2020. And Zillow says that it and its competitors made up around 1% of the housing market in quarter two of 2021. A fifth of the housing market, though, is a massive and influential chunk. And I really want to emphasize that. When you have these Wall Street investors 
buying up like a massive amount of homes. I mean, one fifth of the homes um, or home sales were uh, conducted by these Wall Street investors. Again, it artificially ends up driving up the cost of the limited inventory of homes. And look, I'm in the camp of homes should be thought of as shelter, as a basic human need. There shouldn't be a profit motive behind it, right? But you should also understand that owning a home was really the only vehicle left for working families to build wealth. A lot of families actually uh, have relied on the home that they've invested in as their retirement, for instance. That's how broken our system is. And so that one vehicle to build wealth for working Americans has been uh, taken away uh, by these Wall Street investors with the help of the United States government, by the way. Now, uh, rather than protecting communities uh, after the 2008 economic collapse, Obama-era financial policies actually further put American families at a massive disadvantage, okay? And it's important to look at the failures of these policies uh, so we can kind of recognize them as they're being proposed in the future, but also so we can actually diagnose what the real problem is in the way that we carry out financial policies in the past, right? So um, rather than protecting communities and making it easy for homeowners to restructure bad mortgages or repair their credit after succumbing to predatory predatory loans, the government facilitated the transfer of wealth from people to private equity firms. And that is a huge problem that we're experiencing today. For instance, in 2016, 95% of the distressed mortgages on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's books were auctioned off to Wall Street investors without any meaningful stipulations. And private equity firms had acquired more than 200,000 homes in desirable cities and middle-class suburban neighborhoods, creating a tantalizing new asset class, the single-family rental home. Now think about what the priority was here. The very Wall Street firms that engaged in the bad behavior that collapsed the economy were essentially awarded with these homes that were honestly pennies on the dollar. They were able to get those homes for pennies on the dollar. In the meantime, all those American families who were foreclosed on really didn't get much help from the Obama administration. They lost their homes. And remember, they were people who were um, victims of predatory practices by Wall Street firms, right? These predatory um, um, subprime loans. Now, Blackstone benefited from uh, the Wall Street friendly policies the most. By early 2020, the New York Times reported that strategic acquisitions culminated in the Blackstone subsidiary Invitation Homes, making Invitation Homes the largest single family rental company in America with nine with 79,505 homes after Blackstone sold, sold its shares in the end of 2019. Now, Wall Street's latest real estate grab has ballooned to roughly $60 billion, representing hundreds of thousands of properties. By now, a whopping 20% of residential property is being gobbled up by these institutional investors, and they're not looking to flip the houses either. What they're looking to do is corner the market on rentals and essentially become these corporate landlords who can jack up rental prices as much as they want. Now, since inflation continues to dominate headlines, it's worth noting how Invitation Homes uh, CEO Dallas Tanner answers questions about the undeniable 
and untenable inflation in housing. Let's watch. And you certainly continue to be an active acquirer of more properties, given the fact that uh, there is such a tight supply of homes out there and we do see those prices uh, on the rise. Are you able to buy what you're seeking and what does that look like? Yeah, we feel really comfortable that we can grow our business by, you know, at least a billion dollars this year in terms of new acquisition growth. It is a tight environment. But remember, there's still six million transactions every year in the U.S. um, And about 98 percent of those go between mom and pops and individual investors that are trading back and forth. Uh, So there's still plenty of opportunity to be to be an acquirer and to continue to grow the business. But the supply side will you know, stay relatively tight. I mean, mortgage rates are still near the floor. Um, we're not expecting new deliveries to all of a sudden come flooding into the marketplace. So uh, I would mm-hmm. expect that home prices stay relatively stable, if not um, continue to grow in value for the homeowners in the country. Yeah, I mean, it might be beneficial for people who already own the private property, who already own homes uh, for these prices to continue going up. That means that they're um, earning equity on these homes. But Also, why don't we think about what this means for everyone else? And remember, we're not talking about some unnecessary object that people want to invest in. We're talking about something that is a basic human right. So what does this mean for people who don't own homes? Goldman Sachs out with a new note this week, forecasting home prices surging another 16% in 2022 due to mismatch supply and demand. It's not just the worry that prices might crash. It's also the fact that this is harming uh, home buyers. It's harming uh, would-be consumers. It's harming workers. It's become so costly to buy a house now that uh, that is detrimental to the economic outlook in and of itself. The thing that alarms me is the advance in prices by 20% in one year. It's something we've never really seen before. We might have seen it when we had hyperinflation in the late 1970s, early 1980s, but we haven't seen it for a good 40 years. And uh, unfortunately, Zillow's speculative actions have not led to more of this intense focus that's necessary on how to rethink housing as a human right or to ban institutional investors in uh, doing these investments in the very least, in the very least, right? I mean, that would be the first step, but obviously it wouldn't be nearly enough to uh, ensure that everyone in this country would have a roof over their heads, that everyone in this country would be provided that very basic human right. Still, housing is considered a commodity. Most of the focus has been on whether Zillow's proprietary method of evaluating home values is accurate enough. For instance, in light of the challenges Zillow faced with its home buying efforts, some people took to social media to call into question the accuracy of the Zestimate tool. Real estate analysts um, like Mike Del, uh, Delpreet um, argue that the home value estimates on Zillow are just meant to manipulate the market further. Uh, he says it's really a toy. It's meant to drive people's interest in property. And by the way, it's no surprise that Zillow used its Zestimate, which has a top secret uh, methodology in determining home values 
to make cash offers on homes the mark, um, on the market for its home flipping venture. So prior to its home flipping uh, failures, Zillow's chief operating officer decided to spin the company's home value assessment as this wonderful metric that enhances transparency. Jeremy Waxman said this, presenting the Zestimate as a cash offer to qualify homes up front will save time, reduce friction, and provide greater transparency, getting us closer to our vision of helping customers transact with the click of a button. But considering the company isn't upfront about its methodology, and now that its iBuying venture has failed, those claims are laughable to say the least. And look, some already knew that. An unsuccessful 2017 class action lawsuit against Zillow claimed that the company was misleading home buyers by publishing figures that were below what sellers were seeking for their homes. The judge ultimately dismissed the case, noting that the tool's name itself indicates that Zestimates are merely an estimate of the market value of the property. But look, imagine a world where we didn't even have to think about a Zestimate. Imagine a world where we didn't have to worry about market manipulation um, under a system that seeks to maximize profit for private corporations. Imagine a world where we could all find or, or find ourselves in a safe, comfortable place to go home to without having to worry about uh, banks uh, foreclosing on us, without having to worry about a landlord breathing down our neck, without having to worry about rent being jacked up without us even expecting it. So I think when you look at the various, you know, housing market issues, uh, when you look at the problem of affordable housing, it always goes back to the fact that we see housing and homes in this country as a way to build wealth, as an investment, as opposed to a basic human right. Nando. Wow. Well, uh, a couple of things come to mind. First is, you know, we... We're yelling all day about politics. And, uh, you know, when you see these kind of figures of the institutional investors just gobbling up every single home in America, you, I mean, you just fall into a pit of despair about how we're just entering this kind of new feudal uh, <laughs> reality <laughs> uh, in which we just, we just live uh, for and work for these massive uh, financial institutions. Um, the other thing that, that came to mind and something that's kind of related to my segment a little bit is that um, the housing crisis is particularly acute often in liberal cities and, and liberal states. Um, the housing crisis in LA, we've talked about it a million times. LA is a 100% controlled democratic liberal city. Uh, California is controlled by Democrats. The Congress people are all Democrats. The senators are all Democrats. Everyone is a Democrat up and down the line. Yet the housing crisis here is awful. Um, and it has to do with my segment a little bit because there's this been there's this been this debate amongst liberals and leftists um, in recent months about, um, for lack of a better term, this this, uh, you know, popularism or, you know, the Sean McElwee school of of political uh, science in which, you know, he claims that these suburban affluent people are actually more progressive than working class voters. Um, and uh, while that may be true on a sort of survey, um, you know, the sort of left theory of political change is that 
um, that voters ultimately vote in their rational self-interest. And when your politics, uh, like it is, is dominated by uh, asset homeowners in in places like L.A., uh, they will they will vote to protect the asset values of their home and they will not uh, they will not do anything to change that. So which makes the housing crisis worse, worse and worse and worse. Uh, So, yeah. Let me jump in on that. I, I think that's such an important point. And we find ourselves in a little bit of a conundrum, right? Because the there are um, working class families who have sacrificed a lot to be able to like scrape up enough money for a down payment of their homes um, or for their homes. And it is the only thing that's um, kind of like keeping yeah. them afloat, right? Uh, they'll take out equity lines of credit from from their home as it increases in value. So I, I think it's important to give those people a voice as well, because um, I think that they get forgotten in this conversation as we start looking for solutions. We have to keep them in mind because, um, you know, if we ever do get to a place, I mean, it sounds like a fantasy, where we start treating housing as a human right, as opposed to um, an investment, you know, you want to make sure that people like who are still like close to the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder um, aren't like punished further because of what we're seeing from these institutional investors. I don't know what that solution would be exactly. I mean, I think yeah. it's important to have that conversation. No, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where like if you were to design a society from scratch, um, owning ho- owning your home is probably, probably warps a, a the politics of a society, you know, um, especially when you get into like inheritance and things like that, like it, you know, it just familial wealth grows and, and it kind of shuts out people, uh, in, in the rest of the society. And, uh, you know, if you were to design a perfect, you know, kind of society from the ground up, I, I don't think that you would design it in a way in which people own their homes. Like you would do some sort of public, you know, uh, public arrangement in which, uh, you know, kind of sim- not as similar to like what we see in Vienna and places like that, where you get high quality homes, a high, like a high quality place to live. that's beautiful and comfortable mm-hmm. and, um, you know, well-maintained and things like that, but that you don't, that, that it's owned publicly, it's owned, you know, collectively, not uh, by, uh, you know, either an, an institutional investor or, or an individual yeah. or an institutional financial private uh, interest. Um, that being said, the United States decided to go a different route from a lot of countries and made homeowning the um, the the bedrock of the middle class in the middle of the 20th century with the GI Bill and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that has had a, probably a long term poisonous effect on our politics. I mean, you did that great segment of months ago on prop. Uh, Prop uh, seventy eight or whatever it was. Oh, it, called, it was what, it, what, Prop thirteen, which passed in nineteen. Prop thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Prop thirteen. Uh, that is a direct outcome of building a society about thirty years before, uh, or twenty years before, um, in California, which was this you know California dreaming baby. You know, like everyone moving out west. There's like cheap land. There's cheap homes and this beautiful sunny enclave. Um, and then 20 years later, you get this like unbelievably reactionary uh, prop in 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 California that that has warped its politics since then, you know. And so um, that's that's true as well. You know, it's like people were like own their homes and and like what they want to do is like not pay taxes on them and protect their the, the values. On them. <laughs> you know, like once you have it, um, you 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 become you know, you can become 
very tied to it. Like, as you said, because it is their, it is their source of well-being, their wealth, their, it's, it's everything, you know? So you mm-hmm. protect it like with your life almost. And, you know, and I'm, I'm seeing it here in Venice with this uh, Mike Bonin recall campaign all the time. I mean, it's just, just homeowners freaking out about the, <laughs> about the fact that Venice is one of the few neighborhoods in America that, 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 that is down in terms of, of home prices. So, um, yeah, it definitely warps your politics and, and there's, and there's, uh, you know, it's like everybody, but like as a class, um, that's, uh, that's definitely an effect and, you know, how you deal with it is just very difficult given our system. Absolutely. Well, um, why don't you dig into the Jacobin YouGov, uh, study? Uh, we're going to interview, uh, Katie Reader a little later about it, but it's important to know the details and the context. So Nando, take it away. That's right. Well, this week, Jacobin, in conjunction with YouGov and the newly minted Center for Working Class Studies, released a massive survey on the political views of working class Americans. It's big, ambitious, and as far as anyone can tell, the first of its kind. The reason for the study is that if you care about any sort of progressive change, whether it's an improved healthcare system or any redistribution of wealth or the reigning in of the power of the rich or any of the good stuff that we want here at Jacobin, it will only happen if it comes from a base of power rooted in the working class. This isn't like a purely theoretical exercise. It is rooted in actual history. Think of any big reform that you could loosely define as progressive, whether it was the New Deal or civil rights or the eight-hour workday or even the European welfare state or the National Health Service in the UK. In every instance, it was delivered by political parties whose base was in the working class. It isn't because the working class have any sort of moral or mystical qualities that make it special. It is because those reforms are in the working class's self-interest. If the base of power for your political party are bourgeois suburbanite homeowners, well, I'm sorry to say the issues that matter to them will be prioritized. And for the last few decades, for the last few decades, broadly speaking, Since the dawn of the neoliberal era, left parties, which were formally rooted in the working class and delivered the great reforms of the 20th century, have been bleeding working class voters and replacing them with more affluent, educated professionals. Here's what the authors of the study wrote in the introduction. In the last decade, as these trends have accelerated, it has also become clear that this class-based shift extends across racial groups. Between 2012 and 2020, the share of college-educated whites in the Democratic camp rose from 46 to 54 percent, while the share of whites without a college degree, already at a historic low, fell from 40 to 37 percent. Working-class voters of color, meanwhile, mostly remain Democrats, but their recent shift away from the party has been just as pronounced. Republican support among non-white voters without degrees jumped from 16% in 2012 to 25% in 2020. Clearly, it is time for Democrats to reassess their approach to winning working-class voters. In the most recent round of intra-party arguments after the 2020 election, both sides recognized the urgency of the problem came to diametrically opposed conclusions. On the one hand, centrists like Abigail Spanberger and James Clyburn slammed left-wingers for their ideological extremism, citing policies like defunding the police and Medicare for all as major electoral liabilities, especially with the working class. On the other side of the divide, progressive leaders like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib insist that the lack of bold economic of a bold economic message has hampered the party's ability to inspire working class enthusiasm. Now, Thomas Piketty, famous for his book, Capital in the 21st Century, studied this phenomenon, and it is remarkably consistent across different countries. Here's Simon Cooper in the Financial Times writing about Piketty's work. 
He writes, quote, Piketty has merged post-electoral, uh, post-electoral surveys from 1948 to 2017 with data on voters' wealth, education, income, and so on. The story for each country is similar. The cultural elite, the cultural elite and the moneyed elite, a.k.a. the Brahmins and the merchants, as Piketty calls them, are both growing. Both have captured their chosen political parties. On left and right, politics is now an elite sport. The big change since 1948 is the educated elites shift left. The trend is virtually identical in the three countries, notes Piketty. In the U.S., for instance, from the 1940s to the 1960s, the more educated people were, the more they voted Republican. By 2016, the situation had reversed. 70% of voters with master's degree backed Hillary Clinton. British graduates moved left more slowly, but now mostly vote labor. He continues by pointing out that this phenomenon has essentially shut working class people out of politics. He writes, quote, the under the underprivileged watch helplessly sidelined in politics, as in most professions. No longer do non-graduates like Harry Truman or John Major lead governments. Even Italy's populist prime minister is a law professor who faced allegations that he embellished his educational CV. Today's politicians are elitist educated by Brahmins, meaning cultural elites, chastised by Brahmin commentators, (laughs) we know who they are, and funded by merchants. Piketty remarks, maybe unsurprisingly, the massive increase in abstention in all three countries between the 1950s-60s and the 2000s-2010s arose for the most part within lower education and lower income groups. Now, the fact that politics is an elite sport, while the underprivileged watched helplessly, is why our politics these days is all just culture war bullshit, while the grand questions of wealth and power are largely just ignored. And while educational attainment is not an absolutely perfect synonym for class, it's pretty close. And indeed, that was what the study used to filter working class voters in five different swing states here in America. And the results are very interesting. Unsurprisingly, working class voters reject candidates who focus on the hot button culture war issues at the expense of economic issues. This is the study's first key takeaway, quote, working class voters prefer progressive candidates who focus primarily on bread and butter economic issues and who frame those issues in universal terms. This is especially true outside deep blue parts of the country. Candidates who prioritize bread and butter issues, jobs, healthcare, and the economy, and who presented them in plain spoken universalist rhetoric performed significantly better than those who had other priorities or used other language. This general pattern was even more dramatic in rural and small town areas where Democrats have struggled in recent years. So the way the study worked is pretty unique. Typical polling is around issues like, say, do you support aggressive climate policy or not? Or do you support Medicare for all, et cetera? What this study did was create these rich candidate profiles where they told the participant a sample candidate's race, gender, professional background, issue priority, and political messaging style, and then pitted them against a different candidate and saw which one won out. So for example, they would put they would put a candidate who was an Asian female teacher whose top issue was healthcare and whose political messaging style was boldly progressive but woke and pitted her against a male black veteran whose top issue was the economy and whose messaging style was moderate but not woke. And they asked the respondent to choose. They did this thousands of times with thousands of different permutations. And now, crucially, the study filtered out hardline Republican partisans, and it only included working class people who were Democratic partisans, leaned Democrat, were independent, or leaned Republican. It also included people who just didn't vote at all. Now, the idea behind this was that Republican partisans are almost impossible to get. So what were some of the results? 
Well, for starters, it made it abs- it made absolutely no statistical difference whether the candidate was a man or a woman. It was 50-50 down the line. In terms of race, black candidates fared significantly better than candidates of other races, especially white candidates. The way to interpret these results is that if you're seeing the the graphic that the the right the more farther right the little dot is, the higher support that category had, while the further left the dot is, the lower support, the vertical line represents the mean. So, in this category, black is the furthest right, therefore most popular, and then Latino, then Asian, and finally white. In terms of top issues, the candidates who emphasized jobs, the economy, and healthcare did better than the mean, while candidates who emphasized racial justice and especially immigration as the top issue did way more poorly. When polled on specific issues, the results were interesting. And systemic racism polled very highly, for example, uh, as did Medicare for All, which I think would surprise a lot of people. So writing in The Nation, Catherine Rader, our guest and who is one of the authors uh, of the study, wrote, quote, while our respondents preferred candidates with a central focus on universal bread and butter issues, we found little evidence that racial resentment was driving these preferences. In fact, potentially Democratic working class voters were strong supporters of candidates who promised to, quote, end systemic racism, favoring them over rivals with a more general commitment to equal rights for all. To underscore this point, black female candidates were far and away the most popular candidates among our sample, including among white working class respondents. These results complicate the popular theory that the primary driver of white working class electoral behavior in recent elections is a latent or resurgent racism. The supposed racism of the American working class has obsessed liberal pundits since Trump became president in 2016. It is true that working class voters did flock to Trump in large numbers that year. And to liberals, that was evidence that these voters were just horribly racist. This study pours cold water on that narrative. Indeed, a lot of the working class Trump voters actually voted for Obama, a black man, twice. Eileen and Richard Sorokas have lived in Wilkes-Barre all their lives. They're registered Democrats and voted for President Barack Obama twice, even volunteered for the president's 2008 campaign near the height of the Great Recession. People are desperate to work and a lot of people going back on welfare and counting on the government. So people were struggling at that time for, you know, any type of work. At the end of President Obama's term, unemployment in Luzerne County had dropped to 5.9 percent. The Soroka said that's not good enough, and the high-paying jobs have not returned. So in 2016, they voted for Donald Trump. Just like Barack Obama was there, was time for change. It was time for change again to have uh, Trump in there. A lot of their neighbors agree. In 2012, President Obama won Luzerne County by almost five points. In 2016, Donald Trump won the county, beating Hillary Clinton by 20 points. I believe you need that businessman. You got to get the politically correct things out of here and get a businessman, get this country straight out, get the deficit down and, and start getting jobs. So what happened there? Well, this study provides some possible insights, and to my mind, the most innovative part of the study is how they designed a candidate's political messaging style. It broke it broke it down into five categories: woke progressive, woke moderate, mainstream moderate, populist progressive, and republican. So, what do these categories mean? Well, a woke progressive soundbite in the study would sound a lot like this: Good evening, bienvenidos. And thank you to everyone here today endeavoring towards a better, more just future for our country and our world. In fidelity and gratitude to 
to amass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights, including guaranteed health care, higher education, living wages, and labor rights for all people in the United States. A movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia, and to propose and build reimagined systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. Now, in contrast to that, there would be the populist progressive. The populist progressive would have similar beliefs to the woke progressive, but they wouldn't use terms like colonization to describe their vision for transformational change. Here is what a populist progressive in the study might sound like. All over this country, workers are sick and tired of earning starvation wages. You can't make it on nine bucks an hour or 11 bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour. We are going to raise the federal minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. We are going to provide equal pay for equal work for women. We are going to make it easier for workers to join unions. We're going to create millions of good-paying union jobs by rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure and building the 10 million units of low-income and affordable housing this country desperately needs. So again, those two candidates probably believe the same things. They're just delivering the message in a different package, so to speak. And now on the other side of the coin are the moderates, what we would call on this show corporate Democrats. They are also split into two messaging groups. They believe a lot of the same things, but they use different messaging to deliver them as well. On the one hand, you have the woke moderate, or what I would call the Joy Ann Reed moderate, which might sound something like this. Now, one of my favorite American icons, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was was once asked when there will be enough women on the Supreme Court, and she answered, when there are nine. Well, I, I think that's a goal to keep in mind and to be clear about it, to keep working with each other and supporting each other. Uh, Rachel Chavkin put it perfectly at the Tonys. This is not a pipeline issue. It is a failure of imagination by a field whose job is to imagine the way the world could be. (laughs) Now, the other type of moderate is what they would call the mainstream moderate. Guys like James Carville or Joe Biden or perhaps this guy who delivered one of the most famous mainstream moderate speeches in American history at the 2004 DNC. It is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing 
to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. And we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. So you see, he sounds like a populist, but he's not advocating for anything transformational. Now, the final category is the Republican style messaging, which I won't show you a video of, but you can imagine what it is. In the study, they use this example, quote, what makes America great is the freedom of the American people. But today, our freedom is under threat from radical socialists, arrogant liberals, and dangerous foreign influences. We need strong leaders in Washington to protect conservative values and defend the Constitution against those who want to destroy the greatest country in the world. This could have been in a stump speech by Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Now, the results comparing those messaging styles are very interesting. Here are Matt Karp and Dustin Guastella writing about the study in The Guardian. They write, quote, working class voters will not punish candidates for advocating for civil rights. But when Democrats frame this struggle in a way that overshadows their commitment to delivering bread and butter goods, and when they adopt an activist inspired identity based rhetoric, they are likely to lose working class votes. Our survey turned up some very large gaps on this front. A populist candidate with a central focus on the economy earned 63% support, for example, while moderates and woke progressives with a focus on immigration or racial justice won under 50%. The results were striking when you split the voters out by region. Now, it's not a particularly novel insight to say that Democrats struggle mightily in rural areas. Just look at any electoral map. It is a sea of red with tiny little blue spots in the cities. Well, you won't be surprised to learn that woke messaging does not does worse in rural areas than mainstream moderate messaging and way worse than populist progressive messaging. And to me, one of the more interesting areas of study were working class non-voters. Theoretically, we on the left see this group as the sort of sleeping giant of American politics, the group of people that can be that have checked out of the system but can be reactivated to transform our politics. This was one of the central pitches that Bernie had in his campaigns. Well, the study shows that woke language is poison amongst non-voters. The green dots represent non-voters, and the furthest to the right, therefore the most successful type of messaging uh, amongst non-voters is the populist progressive, Bernie Sanders-style messaging. But the second most popular uh, message was the Republican one. The woke messaging, especially the Joy Ann Reed, Hillary Clinton style of woke moderation, is absolute poison. And when you break down the respondents by race, here is how the authors describe the results. While much of the literature has focused on the significance of identity and representation for voters of color, our study adds significantly to an understanding of substantive issues that resonate with voters across racial groups. Black, white, and Latino respondents all viewed progressive policies such as ending systemic racism and Medicare for all positively. The whites were less supportive than other groups in both cases. Black respondents were the most supportive of both priorities. Black respondents were also the most supportive of racial justice as the day one priority for candidates, while whites viewed this priority negatively overall. 
Two other notable findings were that black respondents had the most favorable view of a jobs guarantee and Latino respondents had the most favorable view of cutting government spending. Overall, non-woke candidates fared better than woke candidates among whites who were equally positive toward progressive populist and mainstream moderate messaging. By contrast, blacks were roughly equal in their support for all Democratic candidates. Latino respondents were the most supportive of mainstream moderate rhetoric, rhetoric, the least supportive of woke progressive messaging, and had similar levels of support for woke centrist and progressive populist rhetoric. Now, the results are interesting, but should not surprise us. We have talked about this a lot on this show and on the Jackman show on Wednesdays, that a lot of the rhetoric that has become, if not popular, obligatory amongst college-educated progressives who are overrepresented in political campaigns and political media vis-a-vis the broader population is alienating to large swaths of non-educated working-class people. Hopefully, we will see more studies of this kind in the future, because in order to challenge capital, we need a working class that is conscious of itself and organized into a coherent politics. In order to do that, politicians and organizers must appeal to their self-interest in a manner which is not alienating to them. Sean McElwee is wrong when he says that the affluent suburbs of our cities are the base for progressive change. The results in Virginia last week showed just how fickle those suburbanites are when they don't get to vote against Donald Trump. They very quickly abandoned that veneer of progressivism. If we are to have any sort of positive change, it will come from the working class. And studies like this can be a powerful tool for politicians and organizers who are serious about activating those working class people. All right. And we're going to have uh, Katie Rader on a little later to um, help us further unpack uh, the results. But Nando, it is really nice to have a data set available to kind of reinforce something that we've been talking about um, quite a bit on this show for a long time. Um, and progressives in Congress would, you know, definitely benefit from actually paying attention to this kind of data instead of kind of getting sucked into the failed messaging that we've been seeing from the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, uh, you know, a lot a lot of it has to do with just the the type of people who um, are like work for their campaigns or, or become activists you know, in, in whatever cause, like, you know, environmental justice or, you know, racial justice or whatever, the, the, the vast majority of, of people who comprise those organizations are usually college educated and usually, um, you know, went to some liberal arts school like I did, like, you know, like that where you're just around a different milieu and adopt a different kind of, um, language usage that um, is just completely alienated to regular people out in the world. I mean, it's just the reality of it. I mean, like if you go out in the world and you don't see that there's a backlash to that kind of rhetoric, I mean, I I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's just it's it's as obvious as as it can be. And this study just kind of reinforces that uh, narrative with uh, with numbers. Well, why don't we move on to an interview about uh, failed Democrats with David mm. Sirota, founder of The Daily Poster and uh, a journalist whose work I very much admire. David, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today about uh, the current state of the reconciliation bill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I'll get started. Um, first, full disclosure, I've kind of gotten to a point where Everything related to the reconciliation bill or um, otherwise known as Biden's Build Back Better agenda just annoys the hell out of me because, as we know, Democrats have completely given up any and all leverage that they had by uh, passing the corporate handout bill 
in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? Um, so now, what is the likelihood, before we get into the nitty gritty of what's currently in the bill, what is the likelihood that Democrats even get the Build Back Better agenda passed? I think they'll probably get something passed. Uh, the question is whether it'll be something uh, resembling anything real or just a piece of paper called the Build Back Better uh, Act that has nothing in it. Uh, every week that has that this has dragged on, there's been another cut another slice another uh, thing taken out of the out of the proposal uh and i i keep joking on social media that it kind of reminds me of that of that scene in planes trains and automobiles where john candy is left uh, offering up uh, two dollars and a casio uh, to try to get a hotel room and that i i feel like the negotiations have gone from six trillion dollars to four trillion dollars to 3.5 trillion dollars down to 1.9 trillion dollars and now we are headed towards uh, two bucks and a used Casio wristwatch. Uh, so I think ultimately they'll pass something because it would be uh, almost even too embarrassing even for the Democrats to pass absolutely nothing. But I think that every single week that this drags on, uh, the thing that they will pass keeps getting whittled down and whittled down further. Uh, and that really, you know, that that's really a, a tragedy. If, if, if the bill gets cut into uh, much more, there's not really much left, and it would be a hugely wasted uh, opportunity, uh, a fleeting opportunity, uh, where the Democrats actually control uh, the lawmaking apparatus of the government uh, to not actually do something transformative, uh, I think would be uh, just a huge, a huge historical missed opportunity. Well, just a follow up on that. Uh, to be fair, I do hear that Senator Joe Manchin is concerned about the impact of used Casio wristwatches on inflation. <laughs> so we got to make sure that we provide that perspective. Right. Sure. Exactly. I mean, he just keeps coming up with all sorts of reasons to uh, to to say he's against this bill. Uh, but I think we have to understand that there's an, uh, an asymmetry in the battle here, uh, that the Progressive caucus, I don't think they're operating in bad faith. I think they're relatively weak. I think they're relatively conflict averse. Uh, I think they don't have a, a, a lot of intestinal fortitude. But I don't think they're operating in bad faith. I don't think they're corrupt. I don't think they're uh, trying to uh, get this bill killed. Uh, and, and the asymmetry is, is that they're trying to uh, find a way to protect uh, the things that are good in this bill. And the asymmetry is, is that the uh, mansion cinema Josh Gottheimer, House corporate Democrats, they're they're perfectly happy to have the bill be killed. Uh, the, their donors are perfectly happy to have the bill uh, be completely killed. Uh, so so the problem is is that there there are two uh, there are two thought processes going on here. There's two calculations, uh, and so the the side that is willing to just kill the entire bill, the side that's willing to be just nakedly corrupt and nihilistic uh, is going to have potentially more leverage. And so how to deal with that, how to negotiate uh, around that, it's not an easy thing. And I've said from the get-go uh, that the key thing that the progressives should be trying to do is trying to mobilize the White House in a real way to use its power uh, to actually make sure a, a bill that gets passed is something real. And to my mind so far, you have not really seen the White House mobilize in any real way uh, to 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 put any pressure on the corporate side of the party. So um, I guess I, I want to know 
one of two things, but like, first of all, like what's still in the, like supposedly in the bill. I mean, the, the Chapo guys have like the ongoing joke that there's like, there, there's a floss Latino initiative where like, they're going to do like subsidies to uh, give uh, Latinos uh, floss kits. And, and, you know, cause it's like, just like this ridiculous thing. Um, because like, I just like every day you, I'm on Twitter and I'm like, okay, now this thing is out of the bill. Like now this right. is the out of the bill. And I, so I don't even know what's, what's in the bill. Uh, but also um, what, like, I mean, there's been a lot of focus on the progressives, um, uh, and and it's it's true that the squad voted against the the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but the rest of the progressive caucus seemed to cave. Um, what happened there? Like, what, what what who got to them? How did they put the squeeze on them? Well, I think what happened is is that the White House and the corporate press created the idea that Democrats had to do something instantly after the Virginia and New Jersey elections. They created a kind of false urgency and immediacy on the infrastructure bill, which was fairly uh, hilarious at one level because the infrastructure bill is actually, for better or worse, is not the bill that's going to start delivering uh, real aid immediately. I mean, the whole idea of a, of so-called shovel-ready plans it's just belied by the fact that infrastructure programs tend to spend money uh, relatively slowly and that the thing that really needs to get out there quickly and that can get out there quickly uh, is direct aid uh, to people in the country who are struggling to survive right now. Uh, so the direct aid that, that can and needs to get out there as quickly as possible is still languishing. And they use the kind of artificial urgency of, oh, we must pass something immediately after the election uh, massacres uh, in Virginia uh, and the election underperformance in New Jersey. Oh, the thing we need to urgently pass is this thing that spends money relatively slowly. I think the calculation among progressives uh, was, and I think it was the wrong calculation, uh, was to essentially succumb to that. Uh, they succumbed to that fervor. Uh, most of them did. Uh, they agreed to split the infrastructure bill from the reconciliation bill. Uh, at, the White House put a lot of pressure on progressives, notably the White House not putting much pressure on corporate Democrats. So the progressive caucus, most of them caved to that in exchange for a promise, a rhetorical promise, uh, that the White House and that uh, the Democratic caucus in Congress will ultimately pass uh, a Build Back Better bill. The problem is, is that once the infrastructure bill has been split from the uh, reconciliation bill, corporate Democrats have who, who don't mind the reconciliation bill being killed, but who really wanted the infrastructure bill. Now they have much less incentive to actually vote for a reconciliation bill because they got the thing that they wanted. Had those two things stuck together, they would have had to vote for both of them to get the thing that they wanted. Now they've gotten the thing that they wanted, they and their donors wanted. Now they're under much less uh, political pressure to actually support the reconciliation bill. And they have much more leverage to gut that reconciliation bill. So the progressives calculus was this, this promise by them to support the reconciliation bill is a real promise that we can bank on. And we don't know at this point whether that that was a good bet or not a good bet. But that was what the bet was. You yeah, know, it's fast. We, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to so we have I, while we were while we were starting the interview, I got a notification on my phone from The New York Times that Kale says Repicazio Cortez isn't wavering on her opposition to the infrastructure bill. Are New Yorkers on her side? 
Um, I just love the, you know, the implicit like, well, it'd be a shame if anything happened uh, if Ocasio-Cortez doesn't vote for the awful infrastructure bill. But yeah, that's how that's how the liberal media loves it. Yeah. And I mean, I think, look, that portraying uh, what AOC did in, in casting a vote against the infrastructure bill, portraying that as her being opposed to the infrastructure bill is so wildly dishonest. I mean, it's just re- it, that was a process tactical situation where you had six Democrats, uh, AOC, Jamal Bowman and and other members of the squad uh, voting against the infrastructure bill to try to keep it connected to the Build Back Better Act, the reconciliation bill. Uh it wasn't uh, that was not a vote on the merits of the infrastructure bill. It was a vote to uphold a pledge that progressives had made a, a process pledge to give yeah. the reconciliation bill the best chance of passing. So it, it is fascinating to see that progressives uh, did end up succumbing to the pressure by the Biden administration to separate the two bills into uh, the bipartisan bill, which has all the provisions that um, Republicans and uh, corporate interests want. Um, and then you have the reconciliation bill, which, of course, has been pared back considerably already. And so that move. And uh, that pressure from Biden ended up putting progressives and their priorities at a pretty significant disadvantage. And then we hear from progressives like Representative Ro Khanna, who says, um, you know, prior to voting in favor of the bipartisan bill, that he was going to vote in favor because he trusts Biden. He trusts that Biden will apply the necessary pressure to get Manchin to sign on to the reconciliation bill. What do you make of that? Well, I, again, I think it's it's the gamble that they're making, uh, the gamble that 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 Biden uh, will actually uh, seriously use the tools of the White House to to secure a really good uh, Build Back Better Act. I don't think there's any uh, basis for that level of trust. Uh, I don't. I, there has been no evidence that Joe Biden is really making much of a, an effort to do anything other than get a piece of paper that he can wave around and say, I got a deal. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you got a deal. It matters what's in the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think there's any evidence that Joe Biden is is not willing to sell out certain key promises uh, that he himself and the Democratic Party has already made. I mean, we saw Joe Biden get into office. And one of the first things that he did was throw overboard the $15 minimum wage in the American Rescue Plan. Now, he didn't do anything to try to get that into the bill. You know, the Democrats went out and screamed about the the, the parliamentarian, which is a joke. Uh, that's their, uh, their own aid that they can fire. Joe Biden did not uh, draw a line in the sand and say the American Rescue Plan must include a $15 minimum wage. I mean, he is a president who has shown time and again that he's willing to betray his own campaign promises uh, in the name of getting any kind of deal. And again, people in Washington fetishize the idea of getting a deal no matter what's in the deal. And and I would argue that people not in Washington are most interested in, are you actually delivering uh, tangible uh, material gains for my life? Uh, and I think people in Washington get deluded into thinking that the country just wants to see things get done, when actually we live in a country that's much more rational than that. I think most voters just want to see if things in their lives are improving. Uh, And if Democrats uh, do not deliver real material help to people and then they go out and make things worse 
and try to sell a bill that didn't really do much for lots of people. They try to sell that as a great accomplishment. I would argue that's actually politically even more dangerous because your people are frustrated. They're struggling. They're barely getting by. And they'll have Democratic politicians running out and saying, hey, we solved all your problems. And lots of, of voters will say, I don't feel like my life has improved. And they'll be feeling that that sense of frustration uh, in the context of a midterm election. Um, just a quick follow up on that, because the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you made a great point about how, you know, the impact that it'll have in persuading voters to support Democrats is pretty slim. Right. But in regard to one very specific provision in it, which would allow for the privatization of public infrastructure, isn't it also true that um, the regressive taxation that's likely to come along with that in the form of tolls and fees to use the previously public infrastructure, wouldn't that also further um, infuriate the electorate against the Democratic Party, especially as they go around uh, doing positive PR for the bill? Sure. I mean, I think that I think the the privatization measures uh, to the Democrats credit were, were scaled back from where Wall Street wanted them. Uh, there was a, at the very beginning of the debate over the infrastructure bill, there was a push by uh, private equity firms and the like to have even stronger mandates for privatization. Uh, as I read the bill, uh, there were some provisions in there which would require uh, states that use the money to essentially study whether privatization is better. But yes, uh, certainly the uh, privatized, uh, the, the privatization of the public sphere is something that we know comes along with uh, some very big downsides, that, that public-private partnerships in the infrastructure space are sold as a great efficiency. Hey, the government you know, can put up a little bit less money to simply pay a private company to do X, Y, or Z, but the private company isn't going to get involved in that deal unless it thinks it can reap a bigger and bigger profit. And that's uh, another way uh, that I think it just inflames people's uh, sense that the government mostly is in the business of enriching the already rich and empowering the already powerful. And that is not good for the political prospects of, of a party, the Democratic Party, which presumably is in the position of, of arguing in a general way that the government can be a force for good. In other words, creating a cynicism around government only ultimately helps the right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I found it like very shocking to see Joe Biden blame the uh, stimulus check <laughs> for inflation. You know, uh, it, which is like it's like, dude, your this your own policy, my man. You know, like you passed this. Uh, that just seems like because I, I, you know, I, I I don't like Joe Biden. I think he's I think he's bad, but I I kind of respect his. On some level, his political instincts are better than some some others in the Democratic Party. Uh, but that just seems to me like political malpractice to just blame your own policy for for something like inflation, which people might are worried about. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it interesting also that the entire inflation debate is not focused on people making a million, two million, five million, five hundred million dollars a year. One way, if you want to, if you're serious about wanting to to combat inflation, you could pass tax policies that tax the wealthy uh, in, in a really serious way. You want to take money out of circulation. That's a, that's a decent way to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. But of course, that's not what, that's not what, what's talked about. The entire inflation debate is, 
uh, the criticism is that, oh, uh, a service sector worker is going to make a buck more an hour. And this is the real problem in America. I would argue that the real problem in America is that uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and Elon Musk have so much money that uh, they don't even know what to do with it other than spend it on uh, uh, space flights, uh, that uh, Wall Street continues to pay itself, uh, its executives, uh, huge bonuses, uh, bigger and bigger bonuses. And somehow the payouts at the top are never part of the conversation, uh, never part of the inflation conversation. It's only uh, the so-called wage inflation uh, at the bottom end of the scale uh, that is uh, vilified. Uh, When, in fact, the thing that has really uh, been inflating for decades uh, is the remuneration being paid to the people at the top, the people at the top who uh, tend to have most of the political power in this country. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many other things you can point to as well. I mean, it is fascinating to see how quickly the corporate media um, circled around the topic of wages or pay for workers when you also have the Federal Reserve and its monetary policy. Um, obviously, uh, inflation has impacted very specific sectors of the economy and for different reasons. Um, in some cases, we have supply chain issues. It uh, turns out, by the way, uh, relying on um, corporations who exploit cheap labor uh, in other countries uh, could have its downsides, right? There's that. Uh, There's the fact that, you know, we're still reliant on fossil fuels. Um, And so, yes, we're seeing an increase in gas prices. But how about we talk about the OPEC cartel and how they intentionally manipulate the market by um, lessening the production of oil so they can see um, prices at the pumps uh, spike? I mean, they're doing that intentionally as we speak because they want to um, earn the money that they lost in the beginning of the pandemic. These are things that aren't discussed at all in corporate media right now. CNN is uh, hyper-focused on uh, the pay or the stimulus that workers received during a pandemic where many of them were laid off uh, through no fault of their own. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I think it's both gross and I think it's also not surprising. I mean, if you want to talk about real inflation in America, How about, for instance, uh, the price of prescription drugs? Uh, Mm -hmm. The price of prescription drugs just continues to wildly outpace uh, the the pace of inflation. Uh, And the Democrats have spent their time uh, watering down their own promised drug pricing bill. uh, And corporate media doesn't really have much to say about this. And big surprise, uh, the pharmaceutical industry happens to be one of the biggest sponsors of corporate media. interspersed between uh, MSNBC or CNBC or CNN discussions uh, about uh, the inflation problem supposedly being a problem of a service sector worker making a buck more an hour uh, and not somehow a problem of uh, all sorts of other uh, problems in the economy. Interspersed between those segments are pharmaceutical ads. Uh, And so big shocker, there hasn't been very much discussion of uh, problems in the healthcare system, uh, healthcare inflation, any of that. So we really do live and we are really immersed uh, in a whole lot of propaganda. And if you pay attention, you can really, really see it. I mean, I saw that clip this week where you had I mean, it was it was it's beyond parody. You had uh, Stephanie Rule, an MSNBC anchor who had been a Deutsche Bank executive uh, who had only a few years ago been caught in a scandal using her MSNBC anchor position to do promotional ads for J.P. Morgan. So this, this person, who had also made headlines buying herself a $7.5 million townhome, she goes on to MSNBC 
and she starts ta- raving about the, uh, the the problem of wage inflation uh, in America. Uh, somehow we're not talking about uh, the wage inflation uh, at the top of the ladder. Uh, it, it, it really is. You, if you step back and you uh, put this stuff into context, what you see is that more and more of the media discourse in politics uh, is more and more uh, manipulative, uh, ideological. And I would argue that people sense this, that more and more viewers sense this, which is why you've seen more and more uh, interest and uh, support for independent media. I think if there's a silver lining to living in the Orwellian uh, miasma that we live in right now, a miasma of corporate propaganda uh, under the veneer of of so-called news, I think the silver lining is that more and more Americans sense this and are seeking out different sources of information. I get the sense that, well, by the way, we're we're in the pocket of big verso books here in this. <laughs> Obviously, that's just, very know, corrupt, just very corrupt. Uh, but uh, I, I get the sense that um, the Democrats having done nothing or close to nothing, uh, plus the presence of covid uh, still existing in people's lives and there's still mask mandates and things like that um, is like a toxic a uh, combination <laughs> electorally. I think people are tired of COVID, understandably. Um, I don't know what like the correct policy is, but I just I that's what I sense out in the world. Um, and that coupled with their inaction on anything meaningful spells to me uh, electoral disaster, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time. So, w- what do you what do you make of of the chances in in 2022? <laughs> Not to be like all Chuck Todd about it. Well, look, this was the subject of this big podcast series uh, we just put out called Meltdown, which is that Meltdown is a series that looks back on the 2009-2010 period where Democrats came in, uh, had congressional majorities, had a presidential, uh, controlled the White House, had a presidential mandate to do real things, had made promises on the campaign trail, uh, and subsequently spent two years paring back their promised agenda uh, and siding with their corporate donors. And that resulted first in the Tea Party election of 2010. And ultimately, it resulted in the frustration and the the angst and the disillusionment that created the conditions for Donald Trump's ascent. And so I think that, you know, the reason we put out the podcast is as a warning that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And I think at the beginning of Biden's presidency, I think there was some evidence that they had learned, the Democrats had learned some lessons. From that 2009-2010 experience, I think the the American Rescue Plan had uh, was a much bolder plan than than Obama's own uh, pared back stimulus plan. But I also think that you need to keep delivering. There's no we're going to sort of deliver once and then we're not going to deliver. And I think the real danger here uh, is that if you don't deliver, then the public we, we know from the recent past that we know that the public. Uh, that voters are going to be uh, frustrated and mad. And you're going to end up creating the conditions for right-wing authoritarians uh, to take advantage of it. That may not be fair. It may not be uh, logical that a Republican Party that represents even worse policies would benefit from that frustration. But that's the way uh, elections have tended to work. And so I fear uh, that the Democrats' failure to really deliver real material help for people in a transformative way uh, is not only immoral, it's not only economically bad policy to do that, but it is politically insane. Uh, it, it the only the best chance you have uh, to to 
have a chance in a midterm election, a, a president's first term midterm election, which tends to be a tough election for the party in power. The best way you have a chance to compete in that is to be able to go to voters and say, look what we did for you. Have you has has your life improved in the last two years? If a lot of voters don't feel like their lives have improved because you haven't done everything you can to improve their lives, then you better get ready for an electoral shellacking, a shellacking the kind that we saw in 2010. And I want to remind everybody, the 2010 Tea Party election where the Democrats got shellacked. If you go back and look at the punditry in 2000, end of 2008 into 2009, the punditry was saying there's no chance the Republicans can ever fight back. They are done. They are done as a party. Uh, and within two years, the R Republican Party had taken back over Congress because the Democrats did not deliver on their promises. They refused to have specifically a fight with their own corporate donors and with their own corporate uh, members of their own party. They were conflict averse. Uh, they did not want to challenge the power of the paymasters. Uh, and they paid for it in the 2010 election. And not only did they pay for it, I would argue that the country at large ended up paying for it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just uh, a quick note, little cross promotion. Uh, you got into a lot more detail about that uh, during your interview with uh, Ryan Grimm for the Intercepts uh, Deconstructed podcast. So everyone check that out. I thought it was a really great uh, informative conversation. And David, you're so wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, give us an update on the reconciliation yeah. bill. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for both of your work as well. For sure. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. The new, the new Howard Stern, the new king of all media. He's doing podcasts with Alex Gibney. He's got a film out coming out with Adam McKay with the most stacked cast of all time. He's on the Jacobin show, which is the most important of those three. Um, it's, you know, it's Rhoda, king of Absolutely. all media. And of course, Such the Daily Post. Yes. All right. Well, um, we're going to get back to uh, the earlier discussion we were having about the Jacobin YouGov survey of uh, working vote, working class voters. And to help us further unpack that is Katie Rader. She is a political scientist specializing in American political development, political economy, race and labor politics. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. You're on mute. There you go. I'm muted, but now here I am. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course, our pleasure. So um, let's start off with, you know, what the motivation was behind doing this study. Yeah, so I think that's I think that's a great place to start. And and what we were really trying to do with this uh, with this study and with the center, I think more broadly, is get a better sense of uh, working working class voter. Uh, preferences and uh, political beliefs. And that's something that we have information about from previous elections, although uh, it can be hard to really dig into voter preferences from election results. And we've got a lot of conflicting information, uh, both within, I think, progressive intuitions about how working class voters uh, behave and what they believe. And also I'm more on the social science side too. So, so there's a lot of conflicting information there. So we wanted to design something to uh, really give us uh, a window into working class voter preferences. And I think that's, uh, that's what we got. 
what was different about this study than from other? I mean, there's polls all the time. People be polling all the time. What was different <laughs> and unique about this? Um, yes, pe- there are a lot of polls um, and, and you have a lot of ways to get this information. What we really wanted to do was, I think, get as close as you can get to a real uh, election style scenario. Uh, so this meant a couple of things. We tried to. Um, so, so basically what people respondents to our survey saw, and these were respondents coming from uh, we had 2000 uh, voters in the sample, uh, not just voters, sorry, excuse me, 2000 uh, working class uh, uh, people in our sample across five different uh, five different swing purple states. So that's that's really good to know. Um, and those states were Nevada, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. So these are these are really um, always crucial battleground battleground states for uh, for Democrats, and then looking very specifically at working class voters in those states. So what what these uh, what our survey respondents saw were head to head matchups. So they were uh, looking at two different candidates and picking between those two, uh, and the features they saw of these candidates. I think this was really what sets our study apart from what's been done previously um, and approaches to sort of studying uh, behavior in this way. So people saw, you know, kind of generic demographic information, the race and gender of the candidate. Uh, we also had a number of different uh, so, so worker category, so, so occupational status. So we had some CEOs. We saw how CEOs did compared to more working class um, uh, candidates like teachers, um, construction workers. And then we gave a couple of different measures that actually got people to uh, sort of have what we sort of the most robust understanding of what a candidate stood for. So this included a bundle of issues. So sort of looking like a platform. So there were three different issues focused on um, the economy. So looking at jobs in the economy, healthcare, um, and then and then racial justice and sort of social justice was that final uh, plank. And then we had a day one priority. So not only what's on this candidate's agenda, but what are they going to get started about immediately to sort of give some variation there. And that's, I think, a place where we saw some really interesting, got some really interesting results there. And then the final piece, uh, we had a, a sound bite. Uh, so an actual, we pulled these from, uh, we created these based on actual quotes from politicians um, in the last two years, candidates and politicians. Uh, we can talk a little bit more. I, I, I'm I don't want to say too much here, but we can dig more into the the sound bites and how we made those. So this was how we sort of set this up and then gave uh, respondents the opportunity to pick between uh, these candidates in sort of thousands of these head to head matchups. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the findings regarding their day one priorities. Um, What really stood out to you in those results? So so I think a really important thing that stands out here is that so the sort of really uh, progressive jobs programs and especially Medicare for all, uh, we saw those those are actually really popular positions, especially with the Democratic leaners, um, the Democratic partisans and the Democratic leaners in the sample, you know, slightly less so among the independents and Republican leaners. But those, uh, you know, those those platforms um, are just overwhelmingly uh, they're popular. I think Medicare for all somewhat more so than jobs for all possibly because that's not uh, as well known as a, a platform um, as it could be. Uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's the biggest real takeaway is that these are, uh, these economic programs, bread and butter uh, programs are really popular uh, among these work, among these voters and non-voters. Um, there, there was a lot of pushback on wokeism, uh, which is, you know, all, you know, it's, it's in the discourse yeah. now, uh, which respondents differentiated from social justice. Uh, can you expand on that finding? 
Sure. So I think here it's really one thing that's important to one thing that's important, I think, that, again, is a value of our study and being able to parse uh, is a lot. So so the sort of wokeism and what we called uh, what we use that sort of uh, descriptor for was in setting up these sound bites. So if you go and look at the report, you can sort of see uh, the differences. But uh, really what we're describing is is a campaign style. So I think you can you know, we can disagree about whether it's effective, but I think that it is a campaign style that's in use by many candidates, including many progressive candidates, although we also included sort of a more woke, uh, moderate frame is what we call that, which was modeling something like uh, think about Kamala Harris's uh, uh, campaign style. Um, so, so I think the pushback there uh, is is about that uh, about that frame. But really, we're interested in what kind of resonance does this approach uh, that many progressive candidates are taking have with working class voters? Um, and we found, you know, I think sort of across the board, we found that uh, it's it's more pronounced with certain groups. Uh, but that that uh, that uh, sort of woke approach is less popular than a popular than, than what we were looking at is the populist progressive rhetoric. So that's based on something like like Bernie Sanders um, that you know this this country belongs to us all, not just the rich, not just the elite. Uh, so that was really a difference. But I think if I can just say one more quick thing, uh, looking at the campaign, uh, the platform, and those issues. There we had uh, what we saw, which I think is a really positive and, and important finding. There's a lot of support among, uh, among the respondents to this survey for ending systemic racism uh, and for uh, racial justice being a part of this democratic package, which I, you know, we think speaks to the fact that this has become very well incorporated into the democratic uh, party message. It's something that's broadly supported by workers and, and not at all uh, not at all a liability when that's part of um, part of the campaign uh, message. You know, what I appreciated was how the study didn't just look at the working class as a monolith. Um, you know, it got into, you know, the uh, differences between the workers, the nature of the work they do, uh, whether it's manual or blue collar or their level of income. Can you, um, you know, weigh in on that a little bit? Sure. Like and this the is findings like, of that. Yeah, Sorry. sure. So so this is actually something we're also uh, looking to to do more with in our future uh, research, right? So one of the things that we're uh, that we were trying to do in the survey was not just sort of rely on a single dimension of class, you know, socioeconomic status, education level. Those are really hard, and you miss a lot when you just focus on something like that. So, so exactly as you're saying, what we tried to build in uh, were were other alternative measures, like. Um, whether you supervise someone in your job, whether your work is primarily creative or whether it's more uh, manual. Um, uh, yeah, so I think those kinds of di distinctions, which we discuss a lot more in the report, and then actually um, going through and, and analyzing how those different kinds of um, how those different kinds of ways to, to cut and, and view uh, this class dimension affected it. So just one thing to give you a sense of what one of the things I think that's most striking that we saw, we saw that blue collar workers, for example, are much more sensitive than other respondents in our survey uh, to the kind of rhetoric that's being used. Um, so they were very responsive and very supportive of populist rhetoric. I think more so than other uh, voters in our the population were sort of the, the woke, both progressive and moderate positions were less um, less popular among blue collar workers. But this populist rhetoric was extremely was extremely, uh, extremely uh, popular among respondents. 
You are a social scientist. You study this kind of stuff. Uh, this is what you dedicated your life to. Um, were you surprised by the results uh, or were you like, no, this is because I'm an expert and because I've studied this, this is what I expected. What were, you, what were your personal impressions? Um, well, I'll say I am a social scientist. Most, most of the time I'm wearing a hat of a very different kind of research. I do largely um, historical work. So for me, like looking at the New Deal, <laughs> that should be an argument that uh, we need these bold economic programs to bring, bring working class voters into the Democratic Party. But we uh, we need more information than that as well. So I think I'll say, you know, two of the findings that I think um, are surprising or or maybe most useful to us in thinking about how to organize uh, moving forward. One sort of this idea that uh, that the democratic label really hurts progressives, or it's uh, really a turnoff among uh, among non-voters, among uh, among working class voters. We didn't find support for that in our study. So the democratic label is not something that's that's hurting candidates. So I think that's one important, potentially sort of surprising finding. Uh, and then I think the other sort of progressive idea that our our study provided some evidence to the counter is that um, that the sort of automatic progressive idea that there's just this you know, among non-voters, there's just this group of working class voters that are waiting to get the message. And so all we have to do is increase turnout. And that's going to really uh, improve outcomes for progressive candidates. Now, that's probably true. Uh, what we found is that that's likely true for Democratic candidates. Increasing turnout is going to benefit uh, benefit Democratic candidates on the whole. But it's not necessarily true for uh, for progressive candidates. And what we think that means is this is still an organizing project. This is still something that, uh, you know, non-voters, uh, working class non-voters look a lot like working class voters. Uh, they split in really similar ways. And that means that uh, reaching them and pulling them into this kind of coalition uh, is going to take the same kind of large organizing effort. You know, a study like this really helps to further analyze what happened in the country in 2016, because um, one of the more dominant messages coming from Donald Trump was this, um, you know, closed border anti-immigrant messaging, which uh, Democrats really tried to, like, take advantage of in their campaigning, thinking that it would uh, really speak to Americans um, and, and really convince Americans that Trump would be awful for the country. But uh, there was a pretty surprising uh, finding in regard to immigration messaging in the survey as well. Can you elaborate on that? I would, I would, which, which, um, which exactly were you, were you pointing to? So in regard to uh, priorities, uh, issues uh, that the, uh, uh, you know, respondents prioritized, it seemed like uh, immigration was like at the bottom of that list. Yeah. So I, if mean, I remember I correctly. Yeah, I think that's a good I think that's a good point. And really, I think that is one of my takeaways from the study, too, which is uh, Trumpism, you know, for those who were surprised in 2016 uh, by the popularity of Trumpism or uh, continue to be surprised. I think really the the emphasis and this the the popularity of you know among our survey of this more populist rhetoric and framing, which I think is one of our strongest findings, that um, that really is something uh, that helps us I think understand and explain the motivation of some of these workers and why uh, why uh, Donald Trump was appealing. Now we're pointing and attaching that kind of rhetoric to a very different political program and political agenda. But I think you're right for for issues like. Um, immigration, uh, these still these still are really hard. Um, these can be really hard issues 
for workers to run on. There's a really great piece. I don't, uh, there's a really great piece that I, um, that I always like to assign to my students in thinking about analyzing the 2016 election by uh, Christian Parenti, a scholar at uh, John Jay, looking at, uh, he, he did the, did the hard work of going through and listening to um, just, just, you know, I think just hours of, uh, of information and, and uh, stump speeches from uh, Trump's 2016 run and sort of looked at like this, this emphasis on uh, this immigration, which is really connected to this, this jobs question of wanting, uh, feeling like they've been left behind in the economy and not understanding, um, on, not understanding this focus. So I think, yeah, we did see, I think, some, um, some of that here. I think immigration, I don't want to say too much more because I do think this is somewhere we want uh, to sort of pull, you know, there's only so much we're able to do in one survey like this. And this is definitely an area we want to um, push forward and look more into. Well, that's, that's my next question. What's next? If you had a billion dollars to do unlimited research, what's the, what are you spending it on the next study? What's, what's, what do you want to look into? So I think we, we will have some more, I think there, there are questions that we've come up with here. We have some more sort of to the question about this multi-dimensional uh, uh, version of class, we do have some more academic style work that's looking at that measure. That's not very exciting. I shouldn't have led with that. I think to me, the more exciting projects that we're, uh, we're headed towards, one, we have a candidate database that we're trying to build. So really, this is pulling, pulling I think, exactly the kinds of dimensions we focused on in the survey, looking at um, issue areas and platforms, looking at candidate messaging, uh, and actually trying to get a better sense of what's the sort of scope and universe of progressive voter, uh, progressive uh, candidates, excuse me, uh, and sort of, you know, figure out, I think, learn more about that. Me as the more qualitative researcher, I think that's kind of uh, where I'm looking. But we also do uh, hope to field more studies. I think this uh, this study has taught us a lot about the kinds of things that we um, we want to be measuring and diving more into. I think you're pointing to particular issue areas like immigration that we weren't able to um, explore potentially as fully as we might want to um, in the study. So I think that's, that's where, but also any ideas where we should head next? <laughs> yeah. Or if you have that billion yeah. dollars. Yeah. I do. Why that? I do. I mean, look at yeah, all these books. <laughs> where do you think they came from? You know, <laughs> these verso books ain't cheap. Um, so yeah. Gotta join um, that book club, Nando. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I know. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to break down uh, the survey for us. I think it's really, really helpful. Um, and honestly, it, it really reinforced some of the stuff that we've been talking about on the show in regard to strategy and messaging. So it's really important work. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. There you go. All right. There you go. It's only um, the smartest on this show. Only the people are saying only the best on the Jacobin show. Uh, and they can't be ugly. No, you know, <laughs> they can't be ugly. <laughs> I love Damn. your Soroto's a very handsome man. Uh, yes, and so is Gil Brooks. Yeah. I can't believe you didn't get the, the new SNL gig doing the Trump impression. That, yeah. uh, what is it like? No, that guy's the best. Guy? That guy's the best. He's the best. He's amazing. He's good, but it's like, I, I have seen the SNL bit like the opening where he's doing Trump and it's, I feel like they all kind of know that he's like really good at it. And they're just sitting with the fact that he can just do this impression. And like the jokes right. are almost like, there's no, there's no longer a joke anymore. It's just <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. This, this guy really does sound like him. Like, yeah. yeah well, I, I thought, whatever. Maybe it was their first time and he was just nervous. Yeah. You know what I just realized, Kale, you could totally be like a stand in, for cousin Greg, 
on Succession. Doesn't he kind of look like Cousin Greg? Little, definitely more handsome for sure. Yeah, I don't know if that was a uh, I don't know if that was a backhanded compliment. Uh, no, no, it was not. I, I actually think, look, his character well, is. I'm not saying personality wise. I'm just saying purely like looks wise. Cousin Greg's a good looking yeah. guy. Yeah. I've seen it on Twitter where women are like, "Oh my god, cousin Greg can like run me over with a dump truck or whatever." But like, uh, uh, I, I think Kale's more handsome than cousin Greg. He, he's he's got definitely more, more handsome. He's got yeah, the chiseled, I, uh, you know, jawlines that cousin dimples. Greg does not. The dimples, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's We're also doing. not freakishly tall. You know, like he's not like six twelve. Uh, this so, is where yeah. the show devolves. Sorry about that, kid. Yeah. I apologize. Got, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, no, we're, we got like 10 more minutes. We're just going to keep going on this one for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I'm on uh, not because uh, I've only seen the first couple episodes of Succession. I actually need to watch it. Um, but it's the only thing that all of my friends are talking about since White Lotus ended. So. It's good. It's good. And I enjoyed, by the way, Nando, your podcast. Um, I forget the name of the network, but it's a network that Woke Bros is on, but you weren't on yeah, Woke yeah. Bros. You were on a different show. Yeah. And it yeah, was a yeah, good yeah. breakdown of succession. Thank you. Yeah, it's on the bomb the bomb feed, the Black That's Opinions right. Matter Network, part of the Count the Dings family. It's you know, there's a lot of networks. Uh but yeah, we do Waz and I do the Woke Bros on it and uh and then on Fridays, I do actually should be out right now. The latest episode with called Machiavellian Fucks uh, with Jason Madison and Anthony Mays. It's good. So should I listen to your overview before diving into the show or should I just watch the show? No, just watch no, because we only we only did season three. So, yeah, yeah. you have to you have to get all the way to season three to know what the hell we're talking about. OK, um, well, anyways, I'm here because uh, we can do some super chat. So if people want to send us a question in the live chat as a super chat, uh, or if you're a YouTube member, you can just ask us a question and, and uh, we'll try to get to them over the next 10 minutes or so. First one that we got a moment ago from uh, Eclectic Miscellaneous. Cancel culture, woke, snowflake, Karen. What are some of your favorite or least favorite buzzwords personally or from a sociopolitical perspective? I don't like the Karen stuff. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it. In fact, I I sent my team um, a message yesterday. It was the second time I sent them. I was like, take all the Karen labeling out of this, out of our content. Like I hate it. It, I just, Mm. we, if we have to cover it, then we can do it without like using that. I don't, I just think it's unfair to Karen's. Like there are good Karen's in the world, you know, why are we, uh, why are we picking on them? Like, Karen, who's didn't she? Wasn't there a Karen who wrote Racecraft? Is Barbara Fields yes. or Karen, Karen, Karen Fields? Yeah, Karen Fields. Yeah. Uh, Karen Fields. She's a good Karen. You know. Um, yeah, we can. She's a good we Karen. Can. We have a we have a Karen that's close to us in the Jacobin world, who's a Jacobin contributing editor, who's written a lot of, on housing. Karen Narevsky. She's a good Karen. Why are yeah, we needlessly bullying like, wh- good Karens, you know? Yeah, it's like, uh, have you guys seen uh, that movie Kingpin? It's like your name becomes a synonym for something awful. Like in that movie, you know, you know that movie Kingpin with uh, uh, with Woody Harrelson <laughs> um, and Randy Quaid? Uh, the, uh, yeah, the his name Munson becomes like a, like, oh, like if something bad happened to you, you got Munsoned. Uh, I can't imagine if my, my name Nando became the synonym for something awful yeah yeah i mean 
the word janky exists and it's not like a positive word. So like, you know, and then even like, Oh, right. something trumps something else. Like there are like names that have other mean- mm-hmm. meanings, which is, you know, sometimes unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, different, different vein of words, but, uh, my, one of my least favorite, I mean, two things. One, um, we talk about this, like when we're figuring out like show content, I hate like, creating yeah content i hate that it's like the word content. contribution to the world yeah it's like we're we're currently making content <laughs> uh and, and i also hate influencer it's, it's i hate like, influencer yeah. yeah um as far as favorite i don't know snowflake's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um LJ, just for you, Nando, preference for mm. single coils or humpbackers? Humbuckers. Um, I, I'm a single coil guy when push comes to shove. I appreciate both, but um, and certain kind of music, you just need a humbucker. Like, I, I don't know. I can't imagine like heavy metal kind of without a humbucker. Uh, but I just like the sound of a single coil. Uh, I just love playing it and it makes it better. I don't know. I just, that's the kind of stuff I've been playing lately. Uh, I used yeah. to be, when I was in high school, I was like, all I wanted was a, you know, a Les Paul uh, humbucker guitar. And then I got one and I was like, I didn't get a Gibson Les Paul. I got the cheaper kind. But um, I, uh, and then, but then I, I, I went to single coil, man. I just, uh, as I, as I grew older, that's what I wanted to, to play. Nando guitar pickups, coiling. guitar pickups talk on the Jackman show. Those are our guitar pickups for the week. Um, yeah. A uh, little bit more complex question. I don't know how good of an answer we can give you, Christopher, but you ask a uh, quick question on inflation. Does it really just boil down to capitalists raising their prices when they, number one, no customers have more money in their pockets, or number two, want to pass costs on to consumers? Hmm. Well, I think both have an impact, right? Um, so in regard to, like, I'll, I'll give an example of um, policy that I think would actually lead to inflation. Um, you know, when you have someone like Andrew Yang want to pare back the social safety net that we already have and replace it with a $1,000 a month universal basic income, I mean, it's very easy for that 1000 a month to be like gobbled up by your landlord, right? So um, yeah. that could have an impact on, um, you know, inflating rent prices. Um, in terms of passing on cost to consumers, yeah, we do see that play out. I mean, I think that... Um, Trump's failed uh, trade war is a good example of that, right? Uh, Now, the corporations might end up paying like a higher tariff, but the cost of those tariffs will be uh, transferred over to the consumers. Um, But it really depends on what issue you're talking about or what um, type of inflation you're referring to. In the inflation that we're experiencing right now, it's really limited to specific sectors of the economy. And you can point to, I mean, I did that, I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. You could point to the specific um, factors that are leading to the inflation, whether it be, um, you know, the supply chain issues in the case of gas because of the um, slow down pace of production of oil. That is a very um, conscious decision that OPEC cartel members are making right now. You know, it really depends on what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's also me. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kale. You do it. I, I was okay. I mean, because 
Okay. So like we talked about last week in Anna's segment, um, you know, like when we're inflation is one of these weird, tricky things that like, again, we experience uh, the effects of, and we don't really like the actual, like what's causing it becomes extremely mysterious. And so we just think like, Oh, our money, it just doesn't buy as much as it used to, or like things are, are more money now than, or like the price of something is more money now than it was uh, a year ago or something. And it's, um, and there's a lot of different explanations for what's causing that. Um, the like the neoclassical, like kind of the mainstream economic uh, explanation, like what's taught in most economics departments around the world, and what like most politicians, liberals, and conservatives are going to be referencing. Uh, most inflation for them just has to do with um, two things: it's like too much money supply and uh, and basically like the system being gummed up by government spending and by uh, unions that um, this it's like, it's tied to uh, the level of unemployment. And then when you have more and more people who are unemployed, um, you know, because of the fact that they're like mooching off of the government uh, therefore, you know, you'll get these prices that are going up and it's like harming competition. That's like the, like the mainstream, Again, it's more, it's basically a right-wing argument for a lot of this. Now, obviously, the money supply is an important part of that. They're not wrong about that. Um, but uh, that's just one factor. Uh, the, yeah, like the Keynesian version also do with, um, you know, uh, it also is dealing with unemployment, but it kind of spins in a different way. And it's about kind of uh, insufficient demand and effective demand and needing greater demand. And so, um, uh there's this whole thing in the, you know, the, there was the whole thing about the Phillips curve. We're not going to talk about the Phillips curve, but this whole thing of like, there's a trade-off between unemployment and levels of inflation. So that uh, if you have lower unemployment, if you're going toward, if your economy is leaning towards full employment, which is kind of the Keynesian political objective uh, or economic, it's both in mean, the economic objective, then ultimately you're going to end up getting uh, it's going to mean uh, greater wages for those workers. Workers are going to demand greater wages. And that means that bosses are going to have to jack up their prices to meet those new demands. And so there's this constant trade-off of um, lower employment means higher wages, which means higher costs, which means inflation, or rather, sorry, higher prices, which means inflation. Um, so Welcome to the 1970s. Yeah. Well, but I, ultimately the Keynesians turned out to be wrong about this. That's the whole thing. They're like, they eat they your could, heart out, Zach Carter. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't explain the seventies, but the, the conservatives couldn't either in their whole explanation of why you have like inflation and unemployment rising at the same time is, well, actually uh, people are choosing to be unemployed. They're just lazy fucks that, you know, um, and we should like destroy the welfare state uh, in response to that. I think the, I, I, there is like Marxist responses to this um, and it's really complex and I don't fully understand it. <laughs> like I've been trying to. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, profitability and, and realizing full profitability that um, this is super theoretical, whatever, but like, you know, the whole Marx has this concept of, of two departments of department one and department two Department one makes the means of production. Department two makes the means of consumption. So department one are capitalists that make like the inputs that go into all of the production processes. And then production two makes all the things that 
uh, we buy. So like consumer goods, um, clothing, food, whatever, um, and raw inputs that go into production again. And so the whole point is that like there, there are these different kinds of capitalists and they are all trying to realize a profit simultaneously. And a lot of them will die, but you, there just have to be this kind of pass off of surplus. And so again, the whole Marxist explanation is just that um, the, what is possible to realize in a given moment in time of like, you know, everyone realizing their surplus and then the actual difference between that and what profit rates they're actually achieving at a given time. Um, the, when those start to, um, I believe it's when they're like falling further apart from one another uh, that you're going to start getting greater and greater inflation. Um, it's part, it's symptomat- symptomatic of declining profitability of, you know, prices going up because typically a boss can't just jack up prices. <laughs> you got, did you make your point yet, dude? Uh, you I love you. I love it. It's great. This is, uh, they're going to teach this in broadcasting school uh, when years to come, you know, they're gonna, just going to clip this, uh, this poor bastard's question on the fucking, on the chat <laughs> and Gail goes off <laughs> fucking 20 minutes. You're like the, you're like the douche level Zizek, dude. Uh, you know, like just fucking press it, turn on the button, pull the cord and have him go. Dude, this is what happens when you're like a deep thinker and like and super yeah. smart, right? Yeah, because so. you you have to caveat every point and you have to you know like yeah. Sometimes you just gotta you know learn from uh, you watch some Bill O'Reilly. You know, like one of the best broadcasters uh, in the history of the world. Just fucking make declarations. Who gives a fuck? Just fucking make the declarations, and that's the point, dude. <laughs> Sorry, Kale. I feel awful. Mando, are you watching the Mexico versus USA game tonight? And if so, who is he cheering for? And does he have any score predictions? No, I'm not watching that on a Friday night. I might watch it like on a Wednesday evening, but no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't particularly support. Uh, you know, I, I like European soccer. I'm a European soccer nerd. I'm sorry. I like the highest level. I don't like watching these people play who are not who are not at the highest level. That's our show. I hope everyone enjoyed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, no, it's yeah, it's fucking. It's complicated, folks. It's, it's complicated. complicated. It's, uh, no, I respect and give uh, Kale a lot of credit for wanting to give a comprehensive answer like that. So I'm the bad guy here, okay? So get on me. Anyway, all right. Well, we all got to go. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. Um, I just got my new edition of Jacobin Magazine in the mails. and I did not. What the fuck, Bosker? I I didn't get get mine. So I get it earlier than everyone else. I love it. Um, So the uh, theme is crime. And uh, so far from what I've read, it's excellent. So everyone, um, please subscribe to the magazine. It's fantastic lots of great work in there subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and uh that's all for me any final words from you guys no. do you want to finish your answer no we'll, we'll finish inflation <laughs> next week all right i love the idea of like we're gonna press we're gonna go dark on the show and then like next week we're gonna it's gonna press live and he's gonna continue <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone have oh, yeah. an awesome weekend we'll see you next week bye later